This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. All right, greetings, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast, Richard Solomon. We are here on behalf of Taking Care of Business, My Father's Place Radio, and Out of the Question, because we have a we have a guest and a topic that really kind of transcends all, all the shows here. So we're going to probably put this on all of our formats. And to introduce us, we have Scott Sherrill, who's a, a, a record industry Macha? Uh, uh, a record industry veteran. <laughs> there you go. Veteran. And, and what he brought into the studios here uh, is something very interesting. I'm actually holding in my hand a billboard, billboard magazine. Like, here, listen. Paper. <laughs> like, right, you know, a, a real, it's from March 13, 1982. And, and I want you to see or hear some of the headlines. It labels revamp stocking deals. They mentioned RCA, WEA, CBS, uh, Congress poised to pass tougher anti-piracy law, Betamax. Remember Betamax? That was Sony's answer to uh, the competition, which was like a better format and preferred by professionals. And it was first. You know, but it got usurped by VHS, which was not as good. And what we're going to talk about is sort of the, what was the record industry like? And and, and just in pre-production, uh, we were talking, Scott and I, and I was just blown away by by so much of how the information was different. Let's let's talk. So, in in the nineteen eighties, what were you doing? In the nineteen eighties, I was selling records, tapes in uh, in flea markets, and I was wholesaling to record stores. Okay, so. Where did you get your material? Where did you get your inventory from? Manufacturers? No, no. Uh, it, it, back in those days, you went to distributors, unless you were, you know, a multi-store operation and could buy in volume. They they really wouldn't deal with you. Now I deal direct with the manufacturers, but in those days they were very picky, and so you had to be a chain operation. So you went to distributors, and. Uh, and, and assorted other places. There were warehouses. We would get a lot of uh, what they used to call cutouts. I remember product. cutouts. Yeah. They, would, they would actually like take a little dent out of the album cover to show that it was a, a cutout. To right. show that yeah. it was a cutout so that you couldn't return it. Because in the record business, you could return about 20% of what you bought, and that allowed you to take a shot on product that the labels wanted you to be a liberal buyer and try this and try that. And if it doesn't sell, you send it back. All right. So how did how did sort of the sampling work in terms of how, how did you did you go to a place that actually listened to music? No, you would have to order the product, and if you were a good operator, then you ordered a lot of different product, and you would order ones of of a big spread of merchandise, and then you would listen to it in your location, and and that's how you would decide. Oh. That's good. That's bad. You would have customers that would come in and they would say, what do you got new? And you would play it for them. And you would get feedback from the public. Oh, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. And you would know your customers and you would know what type of music they like and you would play them that. So were you sort of both a database and a tastemaker at the same time? Oh, definitely. So how did you, how did you pick music for yourself and for your customers and then for stores? Because I have a feeling there was both a little bit of an art and a little bit of a science to it. 
And how did you do all that nuance? Because remember, you're in business to make money, and here you're taking tremendous risk because you're taking a chance on an artist. You're taking a chance that your customer's going to like it, especially if you're dealing with artists who are not yes, who are emerging as opposed to established. Well, you would check and see what radio stations are playing. You would, like I said, you would buy a lot of ones as they were new. You would listen to them, and and hopefully you had a good ear. And and being a, having a good ear was a, a very big part of every level of the record business, from guys like me in a store and selling wholesale to record stores to a guy like Clive Davis scouting talent. You had to have a good ear. So so that would be number one. You, you listen to it, and how does it sound to you? But you also have to know your customer base, and, and what can I sell to my customers? Uh, this might be a great classical piece, but if I don't have classical customers, I'm not bringing that in. So know your customer base, have a good ear, see what the, rec- see what the, radio, uh, the radio stations are playing, and it's a combination of all of that. And if you were a good buyer, then you could always live in that 20% return factor. So how did you get started in all this? Well, I had a girlfriend back in 1973. Uh, I graduated high school in 1973, and she had an older brother who was 20 years older than us, and he had a a small record chain in Queens and a, a warehouse in East Meadow, and I met him, and we hit it off right away, and I went to work for him, and the rest is history. Wow. Now, did you get samples or, or promos? You would get promos, but you, you, you couldn't depend on promos for uh, deciding really what to bring in. The promos were nice, and they were helpful, and it was a perk. But really, you needed to, or you needed to, to, take, you needed to take the chance. Okay. And, and the label was standing behind it because— you could send back 20 out of 100. Right. So, you know, if, if you know what you're doing, you can live within 20 within 100. So when you first started out, what was your day-to-day responsibility? My day-to-day responsibility when I first started off, uh, the name of the outfit was Record Spectacular, and they had stores in Flushing, Jackson Heights, Astoria, Jamaica, and East Meadow. So... Mm-hmm. I would start my day in the warehouse in East Meadow, and I would load up the boss's car. Was was a nice car. It was a Cadillac Eldorado convertible. And did it have um, the skirt on the back wheels? It had skirts <laughs> on the back wheels. Yeah, it was actually it was brand new. It was a '73 Eldorado. Wow. If if you're familiar with that car, and load that car up, and I would go to each store. And I would drop off an order, whatever they had ordered the night before, and I would pick up the receipts from the day before, and I would go to each store and do that, and then I would return to the warehouse in East Meadow, grab lunch, and then I would take orders from the stores to bring them the following day. And you used to do that manually. And when I say manually, there was no computers. There were no faxes. (laughs) There was no emails. So you got on the phone, and they read you an order. Columbia, 32, 555 for three pieces. And so on and so on and so forth. And I would take an order from 
each store, and, and when you first start off, you're a little slow. They got no patience with you, so they're annoyed with you, and eventually you get the hang of it. Now you go into the warehouse, you pick the order, you pack the order, and the day is over. And you come back in, the next day you do the same thing. You load up the car, you bring them the stuff, I pick up the money, I come back, and, and that, was, that was how I started. In those days, how many records were actually in the warehouse? Well, was it thousands? Was it tens had, of thousands? We had thousands, but we and and, and most of the uh, smaller chains, you didn't carry every single thing in the warehouse. So the stores themselves also ordered from distributors. We ordered from the manufacturers. So so in the warehouse, we had the bulk. And then they would order onesies and twosies from the local distributors in Queens. And so we never, I never brought them everything they needed, but we brought them the lion's share. But they had stores open to the public, so they had to have everything. All right, what year was this? That was 1973. All right. In those days, you, were you selling 33 and a third vinyl records? Yes. Were you selling 45s? Yes. Those, those Queens stores were very big. And the, and the singles business was a very big business in those days. I do remember uh, way back when on Utopia Parkway and around 17th Avenue, okay. there was a place in Whitestone called The Record Shop. Okay. And I think they only sold 45s. Okay. And I, I think, you know- It was a big business. I, I, it, it must have been because, you know, that's where people would go in the neighborhood to go buy, you know, 45s. Particularly, particularly in the city. Particularly in the cities around the country, 45s were a bigger business for a longer period of time than they were on Long Island. On Long Island, people got into LPs pretty fast and pretty big. So the, the difference in the stores on Long Island versus Queens was a tremendous difference. You sold a lot of singles and you also sold a lot of R&B versus what you would sell on Long Island, which was... Pretty much rock. Right, right. Album-oriented rock music. A-O-R. Yeah. Okay. Now, at what point did the cassette emerge? Well, back in 73, we were still doing 8-tracks. I, I actually still have a couple 8-tracks. Okay. So we were selling 45s. We were selling 8-tracks. We were selling LPs. We were selling uh, paraphernalia. We were selling posters. We were selling rock mirrors. We, you, you would sell w whatever you could. Uh, cassettes didn't come in oh, uh, a few more years, and then you had those three configurations to sell an album on because they coexisted for a while. Right, where you were selling eight tracks, cassettes, and LPs of the same title. Right, and that's that was kind of amazing for the industry to sell the same thing over and over again without actually having to create really new product. It was new format, new product, and, and they did it again with CDs. True. Now, what's kind of interesting, for the people out there who may not remember or know this because you're too young, the 8-track tape was a very interesting phenomenon because there'd be a song, it would play, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the song, it would go, <laughs> <laughs> and then and it would restart because the 8-track tape was like a loop. Right. And what would happen is they, they, didn't really, they didn't really figure out a way to have a song just be on the track and then end. And then another song, a song would start. So literally in the middle of songs, literally in the middle literally, of the songs, right. it would fade it would out, stop, and then click. And so 
it was different. So, and and yet, it's, what's interesting about cassettes for the people who may not remember, you know, the cassette would run out, it would click off, and then somebody had to physically go in and turn it over and hit the play button, like an LP, right? Like an LP. Yeah. But the 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 big thing about the A track was putting it in the cars. Oh, I remember my uncle had a Lincoln Continental Mark IV, and it was a beautiful yeah, car. It was, it was a, a great beautiful car. car. And I remember he had the 8-track right in the dashboard, yep. and it was it was an unbelievable car. and Great sound. And it had it, it did have great, great sound. And it was funny because you just you, – you would get like a little carrying case for your 8-track tapes. Um, it was like kind of a little piece of mini luggage almost. And you keep that like sort of in the back. And then you would play your your, your A tracks, and it was like. And I remember he had things like Sinatra, and you know, and you know the, yeah. the, the you know the velvet voices of those. Sinatra days. still sells. Yeah, he had like Sinatra and Tony Bennett, and uh, I can't remember who else, Mel Torme, but you know he had that kind of music. I think I think he also even had some Elvis. Every Lincoln had those. <laughs> you know, it was just you know it was just one of those things, and it was a cool looking car, and you know the A track was like yeah. wow, you know it was, it was like a different technology. That was a big thing uh, to add additional sales in the record business was now you could take the music into the car. Before that, you were listening to the radio. Nobody was getting paid for that in the record industry. So the the 8-track coming out was a, a, a big deal in the record business. And, and, and as a kid who started driving like in 1971, 1972, uh, it was a big thing to be able to take the music you wanted to hear with into you. the car with you. Right. And and y- y- you say about the, the carrying case being like a little piece of luggage. It was because the A-Tracks was so big. The cartridges were so big. I actually still have some A-Track Me uh, too. cartridges. Me too. Um, we won't give them up because uh, it's such a piece of nostalgia. And I like to show people, especially at the radio station, I show them the – I go, this is the great-grandfather of the CD or the MP3. And then the the one thing is you know the the plastic thing I don't know what you really call it but you know the forty five spacer yeah so down the turntable I don't, I don't know what the what the official name is an adapter right so the forty five adapter I would actually show what what is this and they go I have no idea <laughs> some people actually wear that on a t shirt the the yeah, the, the forty five adapter forty five adapter on a t shirt and every once in a while you see it and. People don't know what it is. Now, it's funny. I remember having, I think it was a GE turntable, and they had this plastic solid piece that was um, probably half an inch thick and maybe three inches high um, and maybe a half an inch wide. And that was like for the 45. You actually put that in, and you didn't. so then you didn't need to use the adapters, which would fall out. <laughs> and, and you could stack those. Yes. And you could use it as a changer, so you could stack five or six on top of each other. And uh, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah. You, you know, I still have the disc washer. Remember the old disc sure. washer? You, it was like the red velvet thing with yeah. the water. And you, of course. You, you get the dust out of the grooves. You know. Those were all the great accessories that we would sell in the stores. Right. The adapters. Di- disc, the adapters disc washers, adapters. Um, you know, it's amazing how fast this segment's going. Maybe you could start this. Uh, talk about what was the album experience like. You know, you held it in your hands. There's artwork. There were posters. There were lyrics. I mean, it's not like today. You know, today it's people stream and all the other things that they no, do. No, we, we like to physically have the album. Like you said, it was it was art. The cover was art. 
Inside, you got the lyrics most of the time. You got a story about the artist. And from the music angle, what we liked when you bought the album was, yes, you were familiar with one or two songs that you were hearing on the radio from that artist that was on that LP. But we liked to hear another 10 songs by that artist or another nine songs that you weren't being exposed to. Um, The record business is different in that respect now. It's very song-oriented again, the way that it was pre-Beatles. Right, right. Pre-Beatles, not not very many people bought LPs. Most people bought 45s. All right, this is Richard Solomon with Scott Sherrill. We haven't even broke out the Billboard magazines yet, so keep it locked in. This is a great show, great topic for music lovers, radio people, hit music historians. This, you have to keep it locked in, so we'll be right back. Hi, this is Rory Cosgrove, and you're listening to Rich Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. We are back. I got Scott Sherrill in the uh, station here, and this is just just really cool. So, okay, there's so many things to talk about, and there's so many jumping points to start from. Let's talk a little bit about the Beatles. Okay. Do you remember? I guess you remember that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody that's been in this studio that we've talked about in terms of music all have Beatles stories. Joe Rafano was at... Shea Stadium when he saw the Beatles as a kid. I think he said he was 14. And he said it was sort of unheard of. He took the train by himself (laughs) with his cousin or something like that uh, to see Shea Stadium. And he said there was a whole bill. It wasn't just the Beatles. It was like a whole thing. And Cousin Bruce, who was someone who I actually interviewed a long time ago, was one of the people who introduced the Beatles. And as you suggested uh, during the break, you know, the the interplay of radio, radio personalities, it was all an ecosystem. Marita Kay. Yeah. But but it was all it was an, an ecosystem an eco, an ecosystem where you had record stores, radio stations, uh, fans, concerts, promotions, ticket giveaways, record giveaways, you know, all, and it fueled a whole thing of of artist performance. And then I guess there's Billboard and the magazines that track sure. the industry. So let's talk just the jukeboxes. Yeah, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. You the know? jukebox industry was a whole industry unto itself. So let's talk about the Beatles. What what did it how did it, how did it affect you and how did you affect your view of the music industry and the concert experience and radio also? Well, I was 8 going on 9 when the Beatles hit. And my first LP record was introducing the Beatles. And I I don't think I I probably didn't take it off for 3 years. Uh, I have an older brother Mark, 4 years older than me, and we were just crazy for the Beatles, like like everybody. When, when, when the Beatles hit, they say Beatlemania, and people think they know what that means because over the years there's been this mania and that mania. There was nothing that really could compare to the phenomena that was the Beatles. And, and people lose sight of the fact that all of this happened in a short span of time. They were on Ed Sullivan in 1964, and by 1970, they were done. And that's such a short period of time for the impact. Uh, during the break, I said to you it was a social revolution besides just a revolution in, in, in music. You know, they changed music. They changed the way people dressed. Haircuts. They changed haircuts, the way people thought. It, it, was, it was truly a phenomenon. And 
I, I told you when I first went uh, into the record business, I, I went to work for a, somebody who had a chain in Queens, later became my brother-in-law, and he was in the record business in those days. And he told me that when the Beatles hit, you could have thrown away everything that you had in the store for a couple of years because all you sold was Beatles. Beatles and the Beatle imitators, you know, the Dave Clark Five and the Herman's Hermits and that, and that whole British invasion, nothing else was selling. Wow. <laughs> it was a phenomenon. Now, did you sell Beatles things like, you know, you see all the, the, the tchotchke, you know, the Beatles you know, thermoses and the lunch bags and the Beatle dolls and the posters? and Well, again, I wasn't in the industry when, when the Beatles came out, but we had all of but, that stuff. Because we, we yeah, the they Beatle still sell that to this day. We, yeah. we had the Beatle guitars and the Beatle wigs and the Beatle lunch boxes <laughs> and the Beatle thermoses. And I remember going to May's department store. In Flushing? In, in, no, in Levittown. Okay. And they had the Beatles suits. If you've ever seen the film clips of the early Beatles, they had a particular suit that they used to wear. With the high collar kind of, yeah. And it, would, like, it was like a black felt collar and black felt around the sleeves. And we really wanted it and we couldn't have it. And, and I'm, I'm scarred to this day, as you could, <laughs> as you could probably tell. But So wait, wait, for all those out there listening... We're making a desperate appeal. <laughs> if you got a Beatles suit lying around, call us. We'll get we'll get it to Scott. <laughs> must be worth a, must be worth a fortune. Must be worth a fortune. But but that's what it was. You had Beetle boots, and I still wear sort of Beetle boots, you know, because because that was my time. But uh, it it was it was a phenomenon. And Beatles stuff never really stopped selling. I mean, I got into the business in 1973, so the Beatles were already broken up, and Beatles never stopped selling. They still sell to this day. A few years ago, they remastered everything and they put it out again. And the record companies are great for, like you said before, repackaging, repackaging the same stuff over and over again, and. I, I would say a really big percentage of the people that bought those newly remastered CDs were people that already have that music. You know, I'm sure some new people bought them, no question. Beatles always find a new audience because the music is really timeless. But plenty of people bought it that have it already. I mean, I have, I have Beatles songs that I probably have 15 different ways. Singles, single CDs, EPs, EPs on the CD, the LP, the picture disc, the this, the that. Yeah, it's funny. When I was young, my, the first 45 I believe that I owned was Light My Fire by the Doors. Short and, version. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is my cousin Debbie said to me, you know, the album version's much longer because yeah. <laughs> she was an older cousin. Yeah. And I had no idea. And then I guess sometime later she played the album for me. And I was like, wow. I, you know, I, I had no idea that the, the versions were dramatically different. Yeah. And I was like, wow. So, so th that was one way of sort of repackaging because I, I know that there was, you know, when you, you go back in history, they talk about what was like the average song length. And it was always a few minutes back then. And then somewhere in the 70s, you got into these like long instrumental right. things. And into the 80s where you get songs like Awakened by Yes, which was sort of an entire album side. Right. Um, 
And then, you know, Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull had the whole newspaper. <laughs> you know, that started, the, the really long songs, for the most part, really started in the late 60s uh, with the advent of, of FM radio. You know, before that, I'm sure FM radio was there, but it wasn't a popular item. And AM was, was the king of the dial. And well, I used to listen to WABC. WABC AM. Yes. Right, right. 77, WABC. 77, and then it was a w- Beatles C for a while. Right. W- and, and everybody listened to AM. Uh, in, the, in the mid to late 60s, FM radio started to become big, and you got a receiver, and it had FM, and you started to get FM in the car, and then you started to have radio stations that were playing different music than was on the AM dial. So you had stations like WABC-FM that, that later became WPLJ, and you had WNEW-FM, which was a, a very big New York station. They had Scott Muni, and they had Jonathan Schwartz, and, uh, and Allison Steele, Allison Steele, the Nightbird, and you had you know personalities, and they would have the freedom that they don't have today to play what they wanted to play. So they introduced the audience to a lot of these really long songs, and they could play those long songs. You could never play the long version of Light My Fire on WABC-AM because they would cut records at, at like 2 minutes and 20 seconds, no matter how long it was. They just cut it and would play a commercial. But WNEW-FM and those FM stations, they had the freedom, and they would play the seven-minute version of Light My Fire, and that's where we would hear that. And that ushered in all, all of those newer artists that, that were much heavier. You know, the Zeppelins, the Creams, uh, the Yes, you know, a, a little bit of a different kind of sound, a little bit heavier music that they didn't have the freedom to play on AM. Tell me, tell me about some of the the gimmicks they used in albums. I know like the Rolling Stones had a zipper for sticky fingers. Yeah. And Jethro Tull had the newspaper for thick as a brick. And I believe ELO had an album where you, like there was like a paper spaceship inside. And I'm sure one of the, and, and some albums had posters. Yeah, the posters, that was a, that was a big thing, having a poster. And, and now if you have some of those original albums and you still have the poster, makes it pretty collectible because everybody opened up the poster and put it on their wall. Yeah, yeah. I actually may have, I may have something <laughs> stored yeah. away somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I have a few. One of the, one of the great gimmicks, if you want to call it a gimmick, um, was the Rolling Stones some girls cover if you remember I remember that, that had pictures it, it, of like Lucille Ball and some other right and and it came in about six or eight different varieties where the colors were different the stripes were different then they got sued by some of the people whose pictures were on mm-hmm. the album like Lucille Ball and, and and so on and so forth and so that that eventually probably had 15 different covers. And if you were a collector, you well, all. you had to have all 15. <laughs> so so there was lots of gimmicks. Like the record companies were very good at separating you from your money. I, I remember there was like a, a Kiss album. Was it, I don't know if it was a Kiss album or a Kiss comic book where they put some of their blood into the ink. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm you not know, familiar with that to, one. I may but, have to use the internet to look that. But, but I kind of remember like the hype around that. And then wasn't it? 
was it traffics like would shoot out at the fantasy factory or whatever it was it was like it was like a it was like a hexagon or a, a rhombus it wasn't like a square it, it had the, like it had i think two of the corners were cut off yeah. uh, on opposite sides i don't know if it was i don't remember which traffic album it was but i remember that you know yeah there was there was lots of things like that um it, it you know that's when the record business was very healthy and and there was lots happening and and uh, it's very different today. Uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty non-existent today. But to get back to the to the forty fives and 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 how the record companies were very good with coming up with different ways to repackage the music. So when disco music started to come in, and disco music came in pretty early. We had stores in Queens, and we were selling disco records in 1973 and 1974. And when those records first came out, they would come out on singles, and they would be on both sides of the single because the song was really long. And so the what, what we later called DJs in the clubs, they were actually called spinners in those days. And the spinners would come in, and they would have to buy two. And they would have two turntables, and they would... So they would pay, play like um, Howard Melvin and the Blue Notes, Bad Luck, really long song. I remember that. So they would, so they would buy two. <laughs> and as the first side was fading out, they right. would fade in, in, in side two. And if they were really good, you wouldn't even realize they just played two records. So to answer that situation in the record business was born the disco single or the disco 12-inch single was a whole nother way of packaging the same music that was out at a, at a more expense. So instead of buying two singles for a dollar each and spending $2, they came out with the 12-inch single that might have now four versions of that song on there, and they sold for $4 and $5 for a single. Wow. So let's look at the Billboard magazine, because in pre-production, we, it, it was fascinating. Why don't you explain to me with the magazines some of the numbers, because the numbers were staggering. 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 That, that, you, when you used the word healthy, it, you were understating health. <laughs> so so well, you, let's you, see. So, so let's, what, 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 what are we looking at? Let's Tell go us to a chart. Okay. There was one that was a little bit better than the other one. To illustrate that that point of of how many records were selling in those days. Now go ahead, just just read to me. Oh, you want this one? Yeah, I want that one. There was one that reflected the Christmas before, so it had higher numbers to illustrate the fact that we're trying to illustrate here. Yeah. Okay. So. So what magazine are we looking at? So we're looking at the Billboard Top Pop Albums. And it's for the week ending March 2nd, 1985. All right. So okay. A couple of days ago. <laughs> okay. So the top 10, I'm going to read you the top 10. Let's hear the top 10. Wham, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, John Fogarty, Foreigner, New Edition, Brian Adams, the soundtrack from Beverly Hills Cop, Tina Turner, and Chicago. So okay. that's the top 10. And the top 10 has Wham selling a million. Madonna selling three million. This is one week. This is not one week. This is since that album was out. Okay. And so, in the case of Madonna selling three million, it was out fourteen weeks. Wow. Okay. Bruce Springsteen selling three million. John Fogerty, not quite at a million. 
Foreigner at a half a million, New Edition at a million, Brian Adams at a million, Beverly Hills Cop at a million, Tina Turner, Private Dancer at three million, and Chicago at two million. So you have just in the top 10, you have three, six, nine, you got about 12 or 13 million copies sold just in the top 10. And it's a chart that has 200 entries. So that tells you how robust oh. the industry was. It was fabulous. You know, you know, you know it's kind of funny. I always remember like if I, if I bought like a greatest hits album, I was always upset that they left something out because they wanted you to buy something else. Well, they had to save something <laughs> for greatest hits volume two. Exactly. Um, what albums in your memory stick out today? For whatever reason, that they were just different, or they were well, explosive, or they were cutting edge. Well, geez, there's there's so many that would fit those. But the first thing that came to mind when you said that, because we were talking about sales, was Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. A Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, actually started off a little slow, and then it stayed on the chart for six hundred or seven hundred weeks. And there's, you know, there's 52 weeks in a year. So this was years and years and years that this album stayed on the chart. It was, it was a groundbreaking album for the sound and, and the sales. It just never stopped. The, 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 the record sales in those days, they, they had legs. You know, the same thing over and over again. But as far as, as, as groundbreaking, you know, you have to go back to groups like The Cream, with Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Ginger Baker sort of ushered in a whole new sound of, of, of heavier rock-oriented music, uh, guitar-oriented music. Um, you know, those are, the first, those are the first two that came to my mind. You know, it's interesting. I remember going to Tower Records. And, you know, you, you'd always look to see what was new. Because that was kind of like, you know, let's, let's talk about that, like the adventure of finding new music. Because in those days, people, how did people even find out about stuff? I mean, the, the average consumer, I don't think, was reading Billboard. No. The, the average consumer would, would be exposed to music two ways. The radio, obviously. Everybody's got the radio in the car. Music, for, for my generation, the baby boomers, was a very, very big part of our lives growing up, primarily because of the Beatles. The Beatles were so big, and they turned us on to the music that music became. A, I, I always tell the story that people of my generation, when you finally moved out and you got your first apartment, the first thing you got was a stereo. You might not have a couch, you might not have a TV. But you had your stereo. That was the first thing. So you set it up, and then you moved everything else in after that. So, so and then, you had, have, and then you had to have your stolen milk crates <laughs> yeah. to put the albums in to carry them to your new location. That's it. Right. That's it. <laughs> Music was, it was a, a very big part, very big part of our lives. Uh, but the average consumer, so they got it from the radio, and they would get it at their local record store. If you had a good record store, you cultivated the customer that wanted the new product. So they would come into you, and hopefully you know your customers if you're a good operator. I know, hey, Rich, he likes so-and-so. So you come in, and you say, hey, Scout, what do you got new? And I say, right, I got a stack for you. And we would play it for you. 
I like that. I don't like that. I like that. I don't like that. I like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Give me that. Give me this. Give me that. And, and you know, th- those would be the two primary ways. Wow. Uh, the segment went so fast. We actually went over time. We'll be right back. I mean, Scott and Cheryl talking about music and records. This is Russell Hitman Alexander from the Hitman Blues Band, and you are listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. All right, Richard Solomon, we're just zipping along. So we're with Scott Cheryl, and this is just an incredible show. So thank you for listening and being a part of it, and thank you, Scott, for being with us. Thanks for I, having me. So what were, all the rec- what, what were the names of all the record stores? I remember Corvettes had a record department. And they were, they were very big operators, discounters. They moved really a lot of product. Corvettes was, was very big in the business. I, I remember the, that the, the generally the prices that I bought records at were like two ninety nine and three ninety nine. I just kind of remember that. That's because you shopped at Corvettes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was sort of like, all right, I could afford this. You know, it was only, it was only a few bucks, you know. Um, and I do, I, I remember exactly uh, the albums that I purchased, you know, as a kid. But so, who, uh, so Corvettes was around. Who else? Was, who else? Well, you, you had you had the the bigger chains. Uh, Record World was was really big on Long Island. You had Sam Goody. Sam Goody was a pretty big operator. Sam Goody's got it. Yeah, <laughs> Goody got it right. Um, and you know, you just had thousands of independent record stores. The 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 uh, especially when I was a kid and when I first started in the business. There weren't really that many big chains. There were lots of independents. My brother-in-law, uh, he had five stores, and that was considered to be a, a pretty good-sized chain of, of record stores. Um, uh, there was an outfit that I, I actually went to work for, uh, Jimmy's Music World. I remember Jimmy's Music World. Oh, my Jimmy's, God, okay, yeah, so, yeah. so Jimmy's was famous for selling their records for like two ninety nine when the wholesale price was three and a quarter. So clearly they went out of business after a while. But they opened up in the, in the course of like three or four years about 50 stores. And, and that was, you know, that was a huge chain. You didn't really have national chains like you had later on. And and they went out. But uh, you, you mentioned uh, Tower Records before. So, so Tower was a successful chain of record stores. Uh, long before they came into the New York area. They really came into the New York area towards the end of Tower Records themselves. But they were, they were great operators. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie All Things Must Pass. I think I did. That's on cable. It's yeah. the story of Tower Records. Yeah, and the guy... The guy he, he, Russ he, Solomon. Right. He, he passed away, but... You know, before he passed away, they they interviewed him, and he and I remember like there's still like a, a Tower Records in Tokyo or something. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no relation though. Right, but that, that's the, like that's the only Tower Records that's still out there. Uh, you know, anybody that's enjoying this show talking about the record business should definitely see this movie. All things must pass. Uh, I think it was put together by Tom Hanks's son. Really, and it's it's it really shows you i i always say it 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 it's it, sort of like my life the 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 the, the parallels because it was the record business starting from he took over a record department in his father's drugstore and eventually slowly but surely 
built this huge chain, Tower Records, and, and and they showed you how they did it and how they expanded, and and they interviewed a lot of people that worked on the store level, and it it's just it's fabulous and it's extremely sad. It's extremely it, it sad, sad what happened to the business because you know what the record store was like a destination. You'd go there, you would look at albums, you would explore. Your curiosity was always peaked. You'd look at album covers, you'd look at art, you'd look at the songs, you'd look at the song titles, and then you would meet other people who are, you know, other consumers and be like, what do you like? What do you like? You know, and they'd say, oh, you got to get this, you know, or whatever. And, you know, it's funny, um, there there were sort of like rare albums or rarer albums. And I remember um, when I was a young there was a guy that had a Derek and the Dominoes in concert, and it was like you couldn't buy it anywhere. It was just one of those things. He goes, "I'll sell it to you." And I think I, I bought it for like eight bucks, right? You know, and I'm like, "Wow!" And it actually know. became a cutout because it was out, <laughs> and then it, and then they just stopped making it. You know, and and I I just really liked the album, you know, and it was one of those things where it was like it was like a collector's item to me, right? It was hard to find, um, but the record store was. Like you said, a destination. It was a hangout. When when we were talking, you clearly remembered the record store on Utopia that you used to go to when you were a kid. And I, and it was and I remember Corvettes in Flushing. I remember they taking the bus to get there. Okay. And we had a store in Flushing, Record Spectacular on the corner of Main Street and Northern Boulevard. Wow. I think I kind of that was kind of by the RKO Keats. I think Not right too across far. the street. Yeah, yeah, right across the street. Yes, which was an iconic movie theater. Yeah, yeah. we we had great locations. Um, unfortunately, just like Tower Records, uh, uh, eventually it went out of business. Right. Um, which is a tremendous loss. I mean, it's sort of like like the bookstores have gone out, the record stores have gone out, and those were those were real destinations. There were places that people. Hung out, they explored. Uh, yeah, it, it was really, it was really different. Yep, and you didn't have to buy. You could come in, you could browse around. Like I was saying to you, people got exposed to their stuff. You would play them stuff. They would hear it. Uh, w- one of the interesting things about the record business was sometimes how long it took a record to become popular. Sometimes they became popular right away. They came out, they got on the radio, they sold right out of the box. Sometimes a record would sit around six months, and then bang, no ex- no explanation of why is it selling now, but we would sometimes stay, say in the store, I can't believe it's selling like crazy. It's old already. Uh, do, do you remember J&R Music World? Sure. Yeah, J&R I- Music World was one of the great stores, again, an independent store, uh, like tower at the beginning they really didn't know what what they were getting into and so it just kept expanding and expanding and they took this floor and then they took the store down the street and and the another sad story they hung on till the very end and then poof it was gone they were great operators i remember they had an incredible collection of stuff yeah and then you know what's interesting is Sometime after the record, the, the classic record store had its demise, you would find these used CD stores popping up here and there. And they survived for a while because they were, this was like the aftermarket or people right. 
you know, as as people got more and more into their digital devices, and they would burn all their albums, or and they would they didn't want to use use up all the space in their apartments or whatever, or drive around in the cars with the CDs. They would sell them. And I remember there was a little bit of a peak and flow where the used record and used CD stores. I remember there was one in Bayside on Bell Boulevard. Right. Um, I forgot what it was called. There's a couple. There's a, I think there's. Mr. Cheapo's is still around. Mr. Screwed. Cheapo's, yeah, he's got a couple of stores. Right. He, he's always specialized in new stuff. But, you know, there's a couple of really good record stores out there still. Uh, Looney Tunes, Carl Groger Jr. runs a great store in, in West Babylon on Long Island. And uh, a couple of uh, second-generation record guys just opened up in uh, downtown Patchogue. Okay. Opened up a Record Stop, which was for a long time uh, a very popular record store in Ronkonkoma. And, and, and both of these stores are run by second generation kids that grew up in record stores, uh, really good record stores. And, you know, they're, they're beating the odds. They're carrying a lot of new vinyl. And, and, and there's a market out there for new vinyl. It's like a niche product now. It's never going to sell like uh, like we showed you in, in, in Billboard where the top uh, top 10 had 15 million in sales. But there were people out there that wanted and they operate online so they could sell worldwide as long as they have the product in stock. And they and they both run a really good stock, really good inventory. And uh Anybody that really likes the old-fashioned record store, go to these two stores. Take a look. You'll really enjoy yourself. It's a blast from the past. Yeah, one place I visited was Vinyl Bay. Vinyl Bay. I'm not familiar with them. Where are they? Um, they're right off the LIE somewhere. I don't know if it's like the eastern part of Suffolk County or the, or, you know, the eastern part of Nassau or the western part of Suffolk. I could actually look it up. On, okay. You know, but but what was cool is I went in there. I, what happens, I stumbled upon it because they were not in a traditional uh, kind of location. And I think I was passing by, saw a sign that said, like, Vinyl Bay Records. Here we go. Vinyl Bay's uh, new used record CD. They are located in Plainview. So, yeah. Um, and there it says record store in Plainview, New York. Uh, he's in that big warehouse. Yes. Yeah, I've been in there. He he's got he's got a lot of stuff, but he's he's got a lot of old used stuff. He definitely it, it, yes is, is is he 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 was telling me the story. He bought the inventory from a lot of stores that went out of business. Um, but uh, and it's interesting to be in there. You see, you know, there is he's he's got tremendous inventory, tremendous inventory. Um, the the record stores I was talking about, they're carrying. A, a, a big selection of classic albums on newly pressed vinyl. So what was? What was I'm going to look them up right now. Okay, what? one is Looney Tunes. They're in West Babylon. How do you spell Looney? L O O N. L O O N E Y. Looney Tunes, and the other one is Record Stop. Two stores I could highly recommend. I know Carl uh, since he's a since he's a little kid. I know his father since the early 1970s. Great operators. All right, here we go. So it's uh, Looney Tunes, LTCDs.com, 45th anniversary, uh, 1971 to 2016. And what do they say? Uh, uh, store. 
about. Here we go. About. See, this is all of our famous, <laughs> <laughs> famous research. Looney Tunes is a family-owned and operated music store opened in 1971 by Carl Groger Sr. and now run by his two sons, Carl Jr. and Jamie. Prides itself on having the largest selection of CDs, DVDs, and LPs on Long Island. We also have a stage in the middle of our store where we host many performances and autograph signings. Definitely Come, worth the trip. Wow. 31 Brookvale Avenue in West Babylon. And uh, interesting. Really cool. And then It's a beautiful store. And who else do you like? And I like Record Stop. Record Stop, uh, they probably have a little story about themselves, too. They had a very popular store in Ronkonkoma for years and years and years. And, and you know, they ended up closing up the store because the, the business changed. And now his sons are in there, uh, second generation, trying to make a go of it. All right, here we go. Re- record Stop it, on Railroad Avenue in Patchogue. You know, Patchogue, big resurgence in the downtown. And their website is recordstopny.com. And let's see, established 1974 with over four dynamic decades of introducing Long Islanders to rarefied music that would undoubtedly leave an indelible imprint on them and forever weave itself into the tapestry of their lives. Lake Ronkonkoma's Record Stop opened its new location in the town of Patchogue on May 5th, 2017. Interesting stuff. You know, Record Stop was a, a record store that really catered to what the Long Island kids really liked, heavy metal, rock, uh, and, and, and kids would go f- from all over the island to go to Record Stop to, to get uh, some stuff that not everybody carried. You know, that was, that's, you know, that was the thing. Um, sometimes those when you'd go to a record store, they always had like the same Clapton albums, the same this, the same right. that. But you're always looking for, you know, you were hungry for a little more, something a little different. And I remember going to Canada to Sam the Record Man okay. in both Montreal and Toronto. And there were other versions of albums or albums that were never imported to the United States. Right. I remember um, Jethro Tull had an album called Nightcap. And in the liner notes, it's like, these, these are the songs that didn't make it to the albums. Their brothers and sisters did, but not these okay. guys. <laughs> Well, and and he t- and he took sort of like the leftovers and put them in an album. Ian Anderson did, and I bought that. And I'm like, wow, because I, I really wanted more. But this is all before YouTube and you know all this other stuff. And I really wanted more, right? And and there was no way to get more because right. whatever they, you know, I remember there were the bootlegs and the bootleg stores and things like that. Um, I remember buying uh, an album of Eric Clapton's. That was an unauthorized LP, but it was it was great. It was a, a great sounding soundboard uh, album, but you, people were just so hungry for that stuff. Yeah, there know? used to be there used to be a lot of bootlegs, and, and a lot of people um, confuse bootlegs and counterfeits. A, a counterfeit was a record, like the name implies, that was pressed by unauthorized people to pass for the real thing. Bootlegs, like, like fake money, like yeah, fake yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Bootlegs, on the other hand, were clearly unauthorized. Oh yeah. A lot of times they didn't even have anything on the cover. They were just white covers <laughs> at the very beginning of bootlegs, and and they would most of the time be live. Oh, they were always live. Somebody yeah, recorded, yeah. and you know the record companies obviously they frowned on on that type of thing. And you were talking about Canadian, they. They really frowned upon bringing 
imports in from Canada. Why? The 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 um, exchange rate of the money. Oh. You could actually bring stuff in from Canada at the exchange rate and actually make money on it, and they called them parallel imports. So you could actually go to Canada and get the same Billy Joel album and bring it across the border and sell it and actually make more money. Wow. But But they frowned upon it and... and, uh, and you shouldn't do it, and they shouldn't find it in your store. <laughs> oh, we only have a couple minutes left in this segment. We're gonna we're gonna do a, probably a bonus feature or something like that on YouTube after this. But do you have any great stories that that you remember? Any great moments or? You know, I got great stories and great moments. None we're gonna talk about on the radio. <laughs> uh, but as I was saying to you before, did you ever meet any of the artists? You know, record store signings or yeah, uh, really too many to, to to really to mention. Uh, not too many superstars. You know, I never met the Beatles or, or the Who or anybody like that. But you know, a big perk in the record business back in those days, a big perk was concert tickets. Concert tickets were cheap. If you look in this billboard and, and you look under the box office section, you'll see that concerts used to be 10 or $12 to go to a show. So a big perk from the manufacturers would be tickets to shows. So we went to a ton of shows. Uh, but one year I went to uh, an award show called the New York Music Awards, and I met somebody that I really loved from back in the old days. I get I got to meet Dion. Oh, wow. I interviewed his cousin, you know, the Bronx Wanderers. Yeah, okay. The, 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 so Vinny is Dion's cousin. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that was very cool. And, I, and over the years, I met a lot of minor stars. All right. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to continue this. We're gonna, well, this is not over. It's over for this FM broadcast. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. We will we'll always surprise you on this radio show with really cool guests. Scott Cheryl, you are an amazing man with great information and all I can say for out there to be continued. <laughs>